This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome everyone, this is cool to see such a packed room. Maybe uh, some of the other talks were full, I don't know, but <laughs> um, glad that you're here. So we'll make it as interesting as we can. Um, so I just wanted to start by explaining a little bit about where we're coming from in this session. And so, you know, the general theme of this talk is the Democratic Party, the left, and how these two things are related. And the core of our argument is going to be that when you look at the situation of the left, of um, social programs, of the immiseration of working class living standards in this country relative to every other country um, in the world, um, especially those where there is a vibrant left, um, this immiseration, this deep inequality is due in part to the decisions by socialists, labor, and a broad array of movement forces to orient on running in elections in the Democratic Party. And we're going to make the case, hopefully well, for why we need political independence. And so with that, I'm going to uh, give the mic over to Andy, um, and I'll come back in a bit. Hey, everybody. Um, first, how's everybody doing? Are you like burnt out a little bit from this? Okay, well, uh, too bad. <laughs> so, um, what I'm going to start by doing, um, we're going we're gonna to talk about like the party question in general and its place in Marxism. Um, this I'm going to do in large part because we're often not using the same terms in talking about politics, independence, what all those things mean, alright? So, um, there's going to be some theory for a bit, and then some history, and then um, Haley's going to move into some of the more pressing, like, present questions. Alright, so that said, uh, we're going to start at the beginning with the party question in Marxism. Um, sometimes this seems like it comes off a little bit too narrowly, but it's essentially a question of understanding classes in society and, uh, in the broad strokes, about how we get to socialism, right? So uh, if we're not familiar with this, I'm going to kind of outline like a Marxist take on it. Not like the Marxist take, but a Marxist take. So um, first, all right, to understand this is one, uh, you know, there's the basic premises of Marxism. One, society has classes. Like, that's a thing. Um, and classes are not based off of a sociological thing about how much money you make primarily, but it's about your relationship to production, right? So there's more than two classes in society. It's not simply the bourgeoisie and the proletarians. There's more classes than that, but the fundamental antagonism in capitalism is about uh, is about the working class and the capitalist class. It's an unrecon uh, unreconcilable uh, antagonism, right? So that's an important part of understanding how uh, how we act politically. So workers produce value, capitalists take that value, they never award the full, um, they never award labor its full share of what they're producing, okay? So uh, that's an important part of the basic uh, class elements of this. Um, capitalists and competition are often forced to produce, or they're not often, they're always forced to uh, produce more and exploit more, and that exploitation starts with natural wealth of the planet and also workers' labor. So there's no pausing Right. Uh, as long as capitalism exists, this uh, this tension, this fundamental antagonism exists. Okay. Two. Uh, so, what is socialism? I think this is an important thing. Also, in discussing like how do we get to socialism? Is what is socialism? So, socialism uh, has to end capitalist relations of production. Right. So, as long as uh, as capitalist production exists, right, then we're not really at socialism yet. 
right? The, the, the process of the working class taking power is the beginning of a transition to socialism, but it's not socialism yet, okay? So, uh, you know, what we call those things is uh, currently, right, the capitalist class is in charge, um, even though it's formal conditions of democracy in Marxism, this is called the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, okay? So uh, what does that mean now? Like, do you remember maybe like four or five years ago there was that, I think, Yale study that was, um, it was like the United States is an oligarchy, right? It's not actually a democracy. If the majority of people want something to happen and the rich say that they don't, it doesn't happen, right? Dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So um, the dictatorship of the proletariat is not actually a dictatorship, right? Like we're not talking like, hey, yay, fun dictator. We're talking about our class is the class that's calling shots in society, right? So, um, so that that's uh, some some operating concepts to go with. All right, the last thing that I want to throw out there theoretically is that the emancipation. All right, so this is a how do we do this? Um, so this comes from Marx, which is the emancipation of the working classes must be conquered by the working classes themselves. The struggle for the emancipation of the working classes means not a struggle for class privileges and monopolies, but for equal rights and duties and the abolition of all class rule. Okay, so this is a key thing about Marxian socialism. Um, it's an understanding of what has to be done and how. The working class has to be politically independent, which means that our class is not dependent on another one to get the things that we're trying to get. Okay, um, so. How are we doing so far? Yeah? Great. All right. So um, from there, I think this is like sort of the beginning of an understanding of political parties and Marxism. What, uh, what Marx says from there is uh, the working class cannot act as a class except by constituting itself into a political party distinct from and opposed to the old uh, parties formed by property classes. So um, this basic understanding of like we have our class, the working class, and uh, the, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, has its own you know interests, class interests, objectively, and they form political parties and have political representatives of their class. Um, so those two things, based off of our class interests, don't align, right? Uh, you don't want to be in the same party as your boss. Right, that's that's pretty standard, and uh, you can abstract that to society at large. Like our class probably doesn't want, well, no, not probably, definitely doesn't want to be in the same party as as the people that are you know employing us, oppressing us, and so on. So um, that understanding was ubiquitous, right? Everybody, there's was, there was a consensus about this basic take: labor and capital have diametrically opposed interests and we need to have separate political formations, right, so that way our class can assert itself. Um, it was such an important part of the socialist movement that there was a, a major political crisis at the beginning of the 20th century when a French socialist took a position in the cabinet of the capitalist government. Um, and, uh, you know, from wherever you stand, it, there's, a, there's a lot of... Uh, fighting to make sure that class independence remains the principle. So I'm not a Kautsky guy, but I do think that this is a useful thing. Um, so from Kautsky, he says, what's opposed is the idea that the possibility of a proletarian party can, during normal times, regularly combine with the capitalist party for the purpose of maintaining a government or a governmental party without being destroyed by the insuperable conflicts that may exist, must exist. The power of the state everywhere is an organ of class rule. The class antagonisms between the workers and the possessing class are so great that the proletariat can never share governmental power with any possessing class. The possessing class will always demand, and its interests will force it to demand, that the power of the state shall be used to hold the proletariat down. On the other hand, the proletariat will always demand that any governmental battle in which their party, their own party possesses power will use the power of the state to assist it in their battle against capitalism. So consequently, every government based on the coalition of capitalists and work-class party is foredoomed to disruption. So that's Kautsky, right? His uh, contested legacy, but an important understanding that 
this is a, a fundamental understanding of, of the antagonism by classes and then class representatives of the state. Cool, so that's the theory. Um, so <clears throat> from there, we kind of start to talk about what are political parties, how they work, right? So we're going to move a little bit more concrete, but not too much because I don't want you to have a clear idea. Um, so how are political parties built? Um, so first of all, political parties are, are not individual uh, entities, right? It's not a, a whole group of individuals who get together. It's that they are based off of certain organizations of society that, that combine together, right? So what I mean by that is that um, a political party has a base, that's an organized base, and then that becomes its, its ability to like present in, uh, in electoral contests and other things. So historically, like a labor party has to have unions behind it as an organized force that can make it happen. A socialist party also has to have um, other elements of society, organizations of the oppressed, um, and so on. <clears throat> so that I think is an important part of understanding, like how, why are we not with a party right now? Like why is there no political party in the United States for the working class? And also, how does capitalist class maintain its supremacy, right? So, um, all right, so this consensus among socialists, among labor uh, activists, gets broken um, in the 20s and 30s, uh, that we need to have our own political party. No matter, like every socialist of every type was like, that is the, that's the regular thing we have to do. So in the United States, this happens in two ways. The first way is, um, is the capitalist class tries to make a series of progressive reforms, um, which are introducing nonpartisan races in, uh, in city and local elections. Every race used to be a partisan race in the country, so there would be you know, political parties all com you know, getting together, contesting for mayor, sheriff, whatever, right? The <coughs> political parties um, you know, were, were much more developed at that time. In order to like act in politics, you need to be organized in the first place, right? So politics, uh, you, you have a you have to deliberate, you have to think about where you're coming from. Most of the things about your policy happen in the party first, and then you present an election. What the primary system tried to do was eliminate um, eliminate uh, the, the deliberative aspect of politics in the first place. So instead of you go to your political party, you do your stuff, you know, you, you debate, you come up with your positions, and then you present, instead it limited it to only two candidates and really individualized the entire race. Okay. That was the first part of disrupting political parties at all in the United States. The second part, I think, is a, uh, is a, is a world uh, event that happens in the 30s, which is uh, the, the formation of the Popular Front that comes from the Communist International. So <clears throat> um, even though uh, you know, the, the Soviet Union had varying perspectives on uh, how, to, how to build socialism through the 20s and 30s. There's a, a real decisive shift when, uh, when the Soviet Union is propelled into war and they're trying to direct all of the communist parties to defend the Soviet Union like with their satellite parties. So the Popular Front is the Popular Front against fascism and the theory that they use in order to, uh, to do that is that the working class needs to ally with the progressive elements of the bourgeoisie. In other countries, that meant forming coalition governments, exactly the opposite of the Kautsky thing I just read. In the United States, it meant joining the Democratic Party and uh, NFDR, right? So, uh, so you now have the socialist leadership in the country, more or less, that's uh, you know, first divided, there's a split in this, where now it's class independence or popular front. And then, uh, you know, the leadership question aside, it's not like, oh, just the socialist leadership is a problem, but also uh, all of these trade unions give up the, the idea that they need a labor party as well. And so when the CIO allies itself to, uh, to the Democratic Party as part of the New Deal coalition, then it really closes off a lot of the possibility of an independent party because this major base that would be one of the motors of building a political party has now gone over to the enemy camp, right? 
So that's that's a really important part of understanding the history of, of this problem. That problem basically is still with us today, right? So labor is still allied to the Democratic Party, and in the 60s, um, various, like as new constituencies got themselves organized, the women's movement, the black movement, the environmental movement, um, they also embedded themselves and allied into the Democratic Party coalition. So you have all of these constituent groups that should be the basis of an independent party for our class and the oppressed that find themselves in the Democratic Party. <clears throat> How am I doing on time? Okay. So, what else we got here? Um, I think that in the 60s, uh, you also have people that are, are going back against the popular front. There's a rejection by the new left, uh, well, the new communist movement and the emerging Trotskyist movement that uh, that the Democratic Party is definitely not where struggle needs to be built for a revolutionary, revolutionary transformation of society. That also becomes a new consensus. As the movement retreats in the late 70s and 80s, then you have um, the new communist movement that moves right backwards and adopts a popular front attitude as well. They kind of say that they're going to correct against their ultra-leftism and then join into the Democratic Party campaign because that's where all these constituencies are in their opinion. Okay. Um, the, in, the, in the 60s, you also have Michael Harrington's uh, idea of, uh, of how you're going to build a social democratic party. His idea is, is that um, the Democratic Party is already a democratic institution, and what you need to do is isolate the right-wing parts of it and kick it out of the party, take it over, and that's, that's a realignment strategy. That realignment happens, except uh, it kicks out all of the, the working class elements that have control over the party. Corporate money floods the party in the 70s. They reorganize the party so that way they uh, adopt the primary system, which Haley will talk about and all of the deliberative aspects of a political party are, are eroded, um, and it, it really cements the, the corporate financial leadership of the party. So um, where DSA had come into this is we still have this problem, right? Our class does not have a, a, an organ, a political representative, right? We don't have a party that can present in all these things. And, uh, and you know, and, and we're we're fucked right now in a lot of ways, right? So how do we get past that that scenario? Um, so again, this has been a divisive thing for at least 70 years about where do we land on on the Democratic Party issue. DSA saw itself as intervening in this question because, like I said, we carry this with us. This history is not gone. And DSA's concept was, okay, yes, the Democratic Party is bad. Um, we're going to acknowledge that this whole thing is, is fucked. Um, you can't realign the party. These are the terms that were set up at the beginning, right? Because most of the attitude of the movements, um, especially after Occupy, was that the Democratic Party was not a friendly institution. Their contribution was to say, we're going to use the party in spite of the party, right? We're going to acknowledge all the problems of it, and then we'll use that to build our own independent base. Um, I disagree. <laughs> so uh, what you get is um, instead that they they called this either a dirty break strategy or a party surrogate strategy, where they attempted to use nonpartisan primaries, uh, nonpartisan political races, and uh, and partisan primaries is the main way to build socialism um, and to build a socialist bloc. Haley is going to talk a lot more about, about the primary system and why that's actually um, kind of ironic historically because this was really undermining the ability of political parties to form in the first place, to individualize these things, to take away the deliberative aspects of political parties. Um, I do want to say like, it's an extremely effective mechanism to, to run uh, the political system through the primaries. Um, <clears throat> it individualizes things, like all of the statistics are that uh, basically if you're an incumbent, you're going to win your race. It's so effective um, that the mayor in Jaws 1 is still the mayor in Jaws 2. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so 
this is sort of this is a, it's a political problem overwhelmingly. A lot of people will argue it's just a structural problem, but outlining what how the bases of these parties are allied and with the left's intention, right? About uh, are we pushing for independence always, or are we reinforcing this this uh, constitution, this whole correlation of, of powers inside the Democratic Party and maintaining them? So I'm going to turn it over to Haley with that, and uh, I'll be back there. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. So Andy's provided a brief history of socialist changing relationship to this party question and specifically to the Democratic Party. So with that cover, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and talk about the terrain that we're operating on today. And I pretty much steal a whole lot of what I'm going to say from a really great book, Breaking the Impasse by Kim Moody, that folks should check out. It's in the Haymarket book room. Um, really excellent. Again, Breaking the Impasse. So Moody's starting point is that the current period, beginning with the rise of neoliberalism in the 1970s and the 80s, all the way up to the present, is best described as one of political impasse. Throughout this period, traditional political parties around the globe have largely remained deadlocked, unable to pass any significant reforms due to the political polarization produced by the multiple compounding crises of capitalism. So we can look to the prolonged economic slump, the inability of the capitalist class to uh, maintain profits consistently, and therefore um, trying to restore those profits by lowering working class standards of living, by cracking down. The climate crisis, inter-imperial rivalry, in which the U.S. is no longer the sole imperialist empire, but faces rival competitors for global dominance. And now the global health crisis, which has compounded all of these things. In the U.S., we can point to a number of significant left-wing expressions of the polarization that has emerged in response to these crises. So in one of these is, of course, the rise of the new socialist movement. And the most visible expression of that was seen in the popularity of Sanders' two presidential campaigns and the explosion in membership of DSA. Um, but we also see this in the 2020 uprising of Black Lives Matter, which brought uh, between 15 and 26 million people into the streets against police brutality and racism. And we've seen an uptick in strikes against egregious work conditions and uh, attempts to organize labor, including victories against corporate behemoths like Amazon and Starbucks. By contrast, however, when it comes to official politics, this polarization, Moody argues, has been asymmetrical. In other words, at the level of government, this polarization is not between the political right and left, but between the right and the center. So what this means is that there's a dynamic which is exacerbated by the US two-party system um, in which the Republican Party continues its frightening march to the right, and the Democratic Party responds by following to the center. Despite the overall growth of the left, our task remains how to pose a challenge strong enough to break this dynamic. So Moody is far from the only person to acknowledge this impasse, even among leftists who don't share mine or his criticism of running socialist candidates within the Democratic Party. Most today will acknowledge that despite the election of a number of self-described democratic socialists at the national and local level, you know, who've no doubt brought greater visibility to some left-wing ideas, these developments have failed to translate into significant reforms or to shift the overall balance of forces in favor of the working class. So for example, in February, Jacobin devoted an entire issue called the left in purgatory to trying to grapple with the trajectory of the left after Sanders failed bid for the presidency in 2020 and the inability of the left to realize some of its key policy planks like Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, abolishing ICE, et cetera, things that we've seen get more popular over the last couple of years. So despite agreement that we're facing an impasse, few on the U.S. left today question the logic of orienting primarily on elections or of running within the Democratic Party as the way out of this impasse. So earlier this week, um, Benjamin Y. Fong argued in Jacobin that yet another presidential run by Bernie in 2024 could provide the basis for a new political organization to move us out of the impasse. Um, of course, in this context, it's taken for granted that Sanders would be running within the Democratic Party. 
but Sanders has shown little desire to act as an organizer in chief. Um, you know, basically after both presidential campaigns, he pledged to back the eventual winner of the Democratic primary, no matter how centrist. And explicitly, Sanders opposes a break with the party now or in the future. Having cultivated a base of young, disaffected voters by raising expectations to the left of the party establishment, Sanders followed through on his pledge and delivered the majority of those voters back to the party, first in support of Clinton and then Biden, leaving behind no lasting or oppositional infrastructure. Since then, the swift pivot by both Sanders and the squad to backing Biden's Build Back Better agenda, which has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, has gone largely unquestioned. Rather than anticipating, based on a lot of the history that Andy has mentioned, of uh, you know, attempting to actually stop this drift to the center or anticipate that this would be an inevitable outcome, some on the left actually moved to justify this pivot as somehow strategic and somehow a necessity, arguing that there would ultimately be something in it for the left. Spoiler, there wasn't much. Um, commentators like Liza Featherstone were quick to attribute Biden's early uh, executive orders and reversal of Trump-era policies to the strength of the left in an article titled, If Biden Moves Left, You Can Thank the Left. But this presumption ignored the broader context and far greater influences on Biden's actions, which are best explained as efforts to restore economic stability and return to the pre-Trump status quo in the wake of the pandemic, an environment that much of the ruling class sees as the best for business. Moreover, Biden has consistently opposed the gamut of left-wing demands, from calls to defund the police, free college, a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, and he isn't under much pressure from the left to do otherwise. It's a reminder that we can't afford to conflate proximity to power with power itself. Ultimately, this tendency toward accommodation is a political problem that has faced virtually every left-wing movement that has attempted to work within the Democratic Party. And while the contemporary examples I've given primarily come from the milieus of democratic socialists and is the default strategy of the largest organization on the left right now, the DSA, the question of political independence is equally important to the success of labor, abortion rights, anti-racist and climate justice movements and to the future of the left as a whole. So how we understand the nature of the democratic party has a lot to do with why political independence matters. And so I'll go a bit into this. Um, the U.S. stands out among countries with parliamentary democracies where most political parties are membership-based. So that's not to deny that capital has influence in other countries, of course it does, um, or that parties um, have bureaucracies that prevent member input um, from being as great and as you know, democratic as it could be. But on a basic level outside the US, being a member of a party means that rank and file members have the ability to weigh in on and shape the agenda. So as Andy was mentioning about party formation, they actually kind of represent the bases that they claim to represent. By contrast, being a Republican or a Democrat has little meaning beyond you tick a box every two to four years and you vote for the Democrats or the Republican. It's a totally passive activity where, you know, even if you pick the best left-wing candidate on offer, you haven't decided what's on the menu. You've basically just kind of, you know, absorbed what happens to be on offer at the time. Um, at the very best, people can say we can pressure them once they're in office or we can vote them out but we don't actually have much control or input in that process to begin with. Moreover, while each party appeals to voters through its overall disposition on social issues like abortion rights or labor, elected officials are not actually bound by their own party's platforms. So consider that the Democratic Party officially is for abortion rights. And yet in practice, to quote Nancy Pelosi, there's no litmus test for who actually runs as a Democrat. Um, and in fact, as recently as May 2022, Democrats were backing anti-choice Democrats in Texas and other parts of the country on the basis that um, even after this leaked uh, decision uh, from the Supreme Court showing that they were going to overturn Roe, on the basis that basically um, it would be easier for them to win in red states if they dropped parts of their agenda. So throwing people fucking under the bus. Um, However, this does not mean, as some argue, that the Democratic Party has no real structure and is just a neutral, empty shell that the left can use for our own aims, just by running left-wing candidates on the party's ballot line. 
So despite a lack of formal membership, the Democratic Party is a well-oiled and even better-funded machine. The structure of the party consists of an array of party insiders, professional campaigners and fundraisers, local and national functionaries, and behind-the-scenes business groups from major corporations like Apple, Microsoft, J.P. Morgan, to dark money funding streams that are not legally obligated to disclose their donors. So it's not just the Koch brothers on the Republican side. The Democrats have their own. In this arena, little matters more than money. For a sense of scale, the combined $3 billion these wealthy individuals spent on the Democrats' presidential uh, campaign in 2020, which was the most expensive election in history, utterly dwarfed the $100 million spent by unions and social welfare groups. So this reflects the outsized influence of the ruling class within the U.S. electoral system as a whole, but also how capital orients in a particular way, at least its wing of capital, within the Democratic Party and has outsized influence over it. But if all else fails, the party has other stopgaps to prevent challenges from the inside. So folks will remember back in 2016, we saw the Democratic National Committee's willingness to intervene against Bernie Sanders in order to secure the primary for Hillary Clinton. The DNC decides the party's platform every four years and has the job of getting members of the party elected, as well as raising the money needed to do so. While some DNC members are elected during the primaries, the party has a stopgap of appointed delegates who determine what is most likely to get electoral victories. And if all else fails, DNC delegates have the option to switch which candidates they nominate. Um, So this is a rare occurrence, but if all else fails, this is yet another function of how ultimately undemocratic this party actually is and how impervious it is to challenge. So also it's worth saying in 2020, those machinations were not actually necessary um, to stop Sanders. Um, because ultimately he was trounced on the one hand by the strength of local party institutions and in, in, you know, convincing people really that Biden was the safe, moderate bet to beat Trump. Um, and on the other hand, because of a lack of confidence among ordinary people that Sanders would be able to carry out a program that's unpopular even within his own party. So importantly, though, I'll note, this is despite the fact that many of the policies that Sanders champions were widely supported by voters in exit polls. So this disconnect is something that we should come back to between what people actually would like to see happen and their understanding of whatever happens in electoral politics in this country. Um, So I'm also gonna talk a little bit about another structural constraint, which Andy mentioned earlier, which is the primary system itself. And this is pretty ironic because the primary system is the very thing that currently Uh, socialists have oriented on as the path to making electoral breakthroughs for the left by running progressive challengers against centrist Democrats. And the irony, aside from the fact that this is a system that was set up years ago precisely to try to limit challenges and weed out um, potential challengers before they actually got to the electoral arena, in other words, by the time we get to the general election, things have moved as far to the center as they possibly can, Um, There's the fact that money plays an even more um, significant role in the primaries than it does in general elections, and that actually influences who even turns out to these elections and who the Democrats orient on as a base. Um, So there's actually a point in U.S. history where, like, voter turnout was pretty high, if you can believe that. It's kind of like the perennial problem um, of you know, politics in the U.S. today is that the largest party is of people who do not vote and do not really see themselves represented in the system. Um, And one of the biggest barriers is just the enormous amount of money it requires to even have a chance. So, for example, establishment-backed incumbents get favored 98% of the time, right? So that means that you know we have exceptions like an AOC here and there who was able to get through and kind of has justified this strategy. But it's worth noting that over and above all other factors, the people who win 79% of the time are the people who spend the most money. So if we're not actually in a position to challenge that, it's actually a problem for the left, right? Um, because they're going to be outspent by the capitalist class within their own party. Um, The other problem is that the actual constituency is 
skewing older, whiter, wealthier in terms of people who vote in primaries versus the general election. So the fact that socialists are orienting on this as the place where we're going to appeal to working class voters, or even orienting our program or changing our program to say we need to put out XYZ demands or we need to drop XYZ demands because we need to appeal to this voting base, the fact is the working class is not actually there. In fact, when you look at statistics, originally the Republican Party was the party of the wealthy, right? It still is. But overwhelmingly, people who make $150,000 or more are disproportionately represented increasingly with each election within the Democratic Party. That is the base that they can solidly and consistently rely on to vote in these elections. By contrast, people, um, well, I'll just give an example. I mean, I, I work um, uh, in the Legal Aid Society. I am a member of 1199 SEIU, and pretty much every single election cycle, we are told to vote blue no matter who, and lots of resource and money. In fact, the entire political action campaign's purpose, thank you, um, within um, our organization is to get out the vote for whatever Democrat is on offer. Um, and yet, it's worth noting that despite that orientation um, by most unions in this country, only 19% of union households voted for Democrats in the general election. And so we make up a very small proportion of this space, and it raises the question, if we want to actually change left-wing ideas or raise left-wing platforms, um, you know, and we're claiming that that's possible in a party where that base is actually absent, um, then, you know, who are we actually appealing to? When we say things like, you know, polls show that um, voters are not for defunding the police, who does that actually represent? Um, when they have uh, polls showing that people are not actually for certain left-wing demands, who is actually, um, you know, within that constituency? Um, and the last thing I'll say, um, is in justifying the need to use the Democratic Party to advance the left, many point to the U.S.'s winner-take-all system or first-past-the-post as the reason that third parties have not succeeded. Such parties, the argument goes, risk creating a spoiler effect, allowing the greater evil or the Republicans to win. And that's understandable. It's an increasingly right-wing moving party that that uh, spoiler effect has gotten stronger and stronger with every cycle because there isn't a left that's actually in a position um, or oriented on posing an alternative to the Democrats. But in reality, the US is not the only system that has a winner-take-all system. The UK and Canada also have winner-take-all systems, but this has not prevented the election of third parties. Rather, the stability of the two-party system in the U.S. is not only structural, it's actually based on politics. The fact that these two parties, the ideological sorting out, um, and the polarization that each party represents has gotten further and further apart. Um, and the Democrats, um, you know, the fact that they have this reputation as having been more friendly toward the interests of unions and historically oppressed groups is really resting on the laurels, not of what the Democrats currently represent, but of the uh, historical concessions that mass working class movements were able to rest against the wishes of the capitalist class in the highest periods of struggle. So you look to the 1930s and you look to the 1960s, the highest periods of labor upsurge in this country and the highest periods of the civil rights, women's, gay liberation movements. These were massive um, movements at a period where the Democratic Party was frankly less professionalized. But the result was not that the party fundamentally changed. Um, in fact, they were able to actually not just crush movements, um, and of course the state we know crushed movements um, violently, um, but also to co-opt a layer into believing that the advance of a small layer of those people within those parties, of black people and women and people who are historically underrepresented, would translate into gains for the class as a whole. And well, we've seen how that worked out. So what's actually unique about the US in this context of polarization is not the system only, it is not the fact that the party has all of these mechanisms, it's actually the fact that an organized left plays no independent role. And there's nothing to stop things from moving further and further to 
the right because we don't actually have a party of our side that represents all the wonderful movements that we've seen over the last years, that represents the wonderful upsurge that we're seeing in labor and the potential that represents. So um, ultimately, um, when you look at the strategies that are being advanced on the left, whether it's a dirty break or a party surrogate model, all accept the logic that there's kind of no alternative. And in practice, um, I think moving further and further to the lowest common denominator, we saw that, you know, I'll reference this briefly, we could talk more in the discussion, but with the Bowman debate around Palestine, you know, on the one hand you have the DSA voting um, to support the boycott divestment sanctions movement, but in favor of, you know, keeping a relationship to politicians, in favor of being able to win in a district that's supposedly Zionist, instead of actually moving people or trying to raise consciousness around the issue, you actually have a beating back of the pro-Palestine movement and a uh, relinquishing of the demand um, to stand in solidarity with Palestine. And there's always, I think, going to be that tendency if your main goal and your main orientation is winning um, elections in a system that's already stacked against us. In fact, our actual hope, I think, lies in the movements that exist outside the electoral arena where we've seen all of the potential and the way that uh, people's consciousness has shifted around demands like abolition. Uh, not because some politician put out the right demand, but because people actually fought and raised our sights on what is possible. Um, so I'm going to uh, hand it back to Andy to talk a little bit about where we go from here, <laughs> and then um, we can get into the discussion. Okay, so so far we've talked to you a lot about a lot of big stuff, and then you know what always happens is someone's like, but in my city council. Uh, so, you know. So I'm going to try and talk a little bit about like how these things come together. So Haley's uh, part of the talk was uh, a lot about what is the actual current situation, right? So uh, for one, you have this uh, polarization, not actually of society so much, but of the two political parties between center and right. So where is the working class constituency's interest represented? They're not. Um, and so what do we kind of, what do we do with that? Um, the other, you know, the other parts of this is how has the political system shaped up? Um, so you have uh, this shift in the class relationships of the two parties in, in a big way. There's a movement from the from the Democratic Party, like a lot of the working class voters that were historically in the Democratic Party have shifted actually to the Republican Party. Uh, those that are still like voting in those, and then you have a larger shift of wealth over to the Democratic Party. This creates a kind of ironic situation, right? Because part of what uh, what people are trying to do when they run as Democrats is they're saying the Democrats have the base that we want. And and I think the the real part of the the talk that Haley was giving was, do they? I don't know, right? I mean, clearly there are still working class voters, but first of all, um, most people don't vote, right? Especially working class people. And second, in the primaries, the people that tend to show up are professionals and the wealthy. So when you orient it to a political primary and your class isn't there, how do you put together your, your politics and test them out, right? That's a problem. And then if you lose that, you see the ability to test out your ideas in the general election where your class tends to actually show up to vote. Most working class people show up to general elections, not to primaries. So this is kind of you know a, a, a logistical problem. The, the thing that always comes out is the spoiler effect. Everybody always uses that as the cudgel. Um, the, the thing that's happened over the last 30 years, though, is that uh, there's been such a series of gerrymandering things that almost every district is a single party district at this point, right? These are not actually contests between Democrats and Republicans. It's which Republican versus the other one or which Democrat versus the other one. So, you know, you actually have no spoilers pretty much in any of these systems anymore. That, I think, is an important part of, of getting rid of, you know, some of the baggage of we must run as Democrats, right? There's actually no concern whatsoever that you're going to, like, fuck the, the, the election and give it to the right. So, um, you know, when we talk about this being a political problem, there's, there's three parts to this. One is... Uh, one is uh, where is 
the base of, of a, a working class party, right? So uh, what what Haley was describing with labor and all these constituent groups is what they routinely do is tell you go back to the Democrats. So one is a struggle for our organizations about where are we putting our political aspirations? Are we saying that unions and whatever should keep voting Democrats all the time? Or you know who are going to be the people that push those parts that represent our class into forming its own uh, political expression, right? The other part of that is, you know, the left, which is, uh, we tend to be those people that do that. And if we're not the ones actually making that argument, then that's usually not happening. So it's very important that we are always pushing political independence, right? We're not going to get to a political party tomorrow. You don't declare a political party and then it just shows up, right? You have to build that over time and people need to be consistently fighting for it, right? We're not going to tomorrow say, okay, we're breaking from the Democrats, uh, see you later. Like, we want to do that. We want to be in that position. But there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. Locally, right, so the way that political parties are constituted historically is small things first, right, and then they build up. So if you're trying to think about how are you going to relate to a political issue around you, people start, you know, in local ways. They build local political organizations. They start with that. When those have built some strength and have you know people that show up, then they you know federate and create a second one that's like a regional or a statewide one. This is like the strategy that the the farmer labor movement had, I think, in the in the 30s, uh, and they stopped doing it because they all moved into the Democratic Party. There were a lot of these um, third, like actually, you know, basically until the 30s, there were a ton of uh, small political parties, and they contested in all kinds of things. It is really about what are the, the people that are trying to build a political project, where are we putting our energy, right? And how are we going to try to win over people, you know, people into, into this political project? Last thing, um, I mean, first of all, I want to say, we could talk about this for like 30 days. I don't know. You know right? Like this is a debate that's been going on forever. We're absolutely not going to cover everything. So uh, as much as I would love to try, I won't, and I want to try to you know throw it back to you guys and have a discussion. But uh, we're kind of in the part of what am I not saying, right? So you know I'm not saying we're just going to declare uh, we're, we're going to be able to do this, we're <clears throat> and we're also not saying that the primary focus is just elections, right? This is the other part of this is that. Uh, just because you build a political party doesn't mean that it has the right relationship to society, right, and, and the struggle for socialism, right? Um, in this, like, Marxist idea of how do you build, right, it's that this is actually the pre-stuff for, like, building class consciousness and building confidence among people, right? So that way our interests are not subsumed and led, misled by, another, by the capitalist class, right? And then that is what uh, allows us to become more organized, more class conscious, and more combative. And that is uh, like fundamentally how we get to socialism, is that we're fighting, and our political representatives are making more space for that, and are fighting for the greater organization of our class. Not viewing this as like, we're going to get some sweet like you know refunds on taxes or something. All right, so um, I really appreciate it. I'm going to... I'm going to give Haley two minutes, and then we're going to listen to everything you want to say. <laughs> everything. Awesome. So what Andy kind of ended on, to go back to what I mentioned about Sanders' loss in 2020 that was significant, was the gap between people's confidence that these demands could be won and their support for the program. I think one of the big polls right now and one of the big orientations within the socialist left today is that we need these elected officials in order to grow our side. That that is the main way that if we back these people, they will be the basis on which the left grows. And you know, that's not based on no experience. Sanders' campaign is a big reason why a lot of people joined the DSA. What I think this misses is that there were many processes prior to this, including things that uh, account for the popularity of socialism, that had more to do with social movements than they did with any particular figure coming out and having the right you know, program. So the Occupy movement gave us the language of the 99% versus the 1%. Black Lives Matter raised consciousness around the way that policing and the state works in this country. Um, 
the uh, Standing Rock movement raised consciousness around climate change and around indigenous justice. And socialism has been polling um, higher, especially among youth, as more popular than capitalism since at least 2011. And so there are other precursors and other sources of this radicalization. But again, the question is, where do people get the confidence to not only say, well, these things are popular and they're good, but you know, how would we win them? To actually saying, it's going to take us to win them. No one's going to hand it down to us. It's actually going to take our side being organized and uh, being in a position where we're so strong that even a politician not that sympathetic to us is going to have to listen to what we have to say. It's going to have a cost to not uh, you know, um, agreeing to our demands. And so I want to point to you know, a big difference in this country um, in terms of the stakes versus the fact that this impasse exists in every country, but there are places where the orientation of left-wing parties is on how do we advance this struggle in the streets, not seeing elections as the main way we're going to win, but actually seeing struggle and strikes and people getting organized themselves everywhere being the strength of our side, being where we actually build power. Um, if you look at the abortion rights struggle and the fact that the U.S. is going backwards, we have a situation where you know we have such an undemocratic system, and the Supreme Court is essentially enacting the wishes of minority rule, even though you know the majority of people actually support abortion rights. So there's a way that the far right um, is on the advance and has institutional support in this country. Whereas when you look at what it took to actually win abortion rights, it's almost like the Supreme Court became not quite irrelevant, but it was not the main determining factor in places like Argentina or Ireland um, or you know across Latin America where mass movements got the goods. And so I think that if we have an orientation to elections at all, we need to be clear. The strength that we're going to have, where we're going to win power, we're going to be working in a state, we're going to be working in a context that is totally against everything that we want to do. And no one politician just kind of trying to tinker with that, especially in a party of our class enemies, is going to work. We need to be clear about the need for political independence of our movements and political independence of our side, not at some point in the future, but right now. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.